Hello, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm really glad you're here. Today, I am happy to share with you my third installment of my four-part conversation with yin yoga master, Paul Greeley. The focus of this interview series is on Paul's new book, A Yogi's Guide to Chakra Meditation. And for most of the interview, we actually spend very little time discussing yin yoga itself. The topic of yin yoga does come up towards the end of the conversation, but you'll have to be patient for that in the next episode. If you missed the previous two episodes, the first one called The Tao of Paul, and the second called Suffering in Samadhi, be sure to go back and give those episodes a listen. They do a really nice job, in my opinion, of setting up the territory that this particular episode continues to explore. And you might miss out if you haven't heard those previous episodes. But picking up from where Paul left off in the last episode, with the themes of surrender and self-sacrifice in practice, Paul here shares some of his own experience of practice now, a practice of decades of introspection. We then dig deep into the theory of chakras and the role chakras play in the journey of expanding consciousness. But in this episode, we start with me picking up on the theme of mourning, a kind of grief around the death of the illusions that the false self experiences when it wakes up out of its fixated, contracted forms of identity. From there, the conversation just continues to flow, and I hope you enjoy. Without further delay, I once again bring you Paul Greeley. And since you mentioned the, the, the sense of self dying at, at a certain level, or at, there's levels where the, the, your identification of a, as a self dies, you have to die to that level to advance. Um, that just resonates with something a teacher and, and a friend of mine often said, is that the whole spiritual path is a path of mourning, where you're, you're, you're dying, you're, the sense of self you thought you were dies, and there is a grieving process involved in that. that um, I just try to mention that because there tends to be a, a slightly simplistic view that in good practice, things are just going to get better and better and better, and you won't necessarily have feelings of grief or despair or confusion when those, 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 those forms of identity fall away. But, but it can often be very disruptive and very um, disorienting. My personal experience these last few years, and I'm 61 now, yeah. is exactly what you described. It's not more unicorns. It's, it's peeling back what I did when I was 12, what I did when I was 7, back up to when I was 21. It's like I sort of have a semi-constant parade of the pain and suffering that I have caused. And it's, it sounds like a very pessimistic and depressive thing to say, but the paradox is you can almost sense that coming with these memories and these impressions is the sense if you could let this go, there's an aching joy behind it that was killed by that activity. And so, yeah, I agree, uh, at least for me, and I'm no broad religious scholar, that that is the path. The path is, is as you scrape deeper and deeper, it's, it's incredibly uh, mournful and painful. And I can only anticipate what it's going to be to have to make that leap 
um, of all your identification with this body mm-hmm. and your entire life history, because just the little bits and pieces of it are, are grief-causing and mournful. Yeah. So I can only imagine whether it's death or whether I can induce that voluntarily in samadhi and surrender, that that's going to be no picnic. But the reason you go through it is because... There's this joyous wave that's sort of underneath. If I could just take the cork off, I would be, you know, this would be as nothing. What you just shared, and actually I think we didn't get into, you didn't get into too many specifics, but what you just shared is, A, I think, for one, courageous of you to share and, and, <laughs> and important to share. But it, it also, if I can share share with you, it actually literally maps into my experience of the last year um, in that, uh, you know, I've been practicing long for a while and more or less getting into similar terrain and things seem like they're mellowing out. Um, but I started to realize I didn't have many ac- much access to my, my memories of my life. There was sort of a fuzzy gray zone of, of memory. That was, nothing was very specific. Um, and for whatever reason, within the last year, uh, both on and off the cushion, memories have been flooding back, particularly around issues of unskillful behavior that have caused, as you sort of said, you know, lacerating pain to self and others. Um, and I think that... I think this is really important to, for people to hear that this is part of the terrain that that, <laughs> that is to come. Um, and I, I guess if you if you can speak, if you want to feel comfortable, if you want to talk a little bit more about that, what that's like, and how you've processed it, or how you've let it, and I can share a little bit around how I've experienced it too. But I, I think it's it's really helpful for for, for practitioners to to hear from you, someone like you about what what that's like to go through. Uh, well, yeah, I wouldn't go into any much detail. It would be the same, I think, as any human being, unless you're really special. I've got friends who are really special. But as you said it very well, these lacerating things that you've usually done to someone else, but this reliving of them, and when you can feel the pain that you've caused, it's like you've hurt yourself. And then that that absolute truth that the pain you're causing is pain that's hurting you it doesn't seem that way when you're doing it. It seems really fun to bully or beat someone or to win. But now at this stage, you feel the, I literally feel the pain. I, of course, I can't say that it's everything that that person experienced, but I feel pain for what I've done or not done. That was, I was obligated to do for others. And, um, you know, at this stage I could cry very easily, almost every day, easily. In fact, um, my wife kids me sometimes because sometimes I will literally, when she's out drumming and practicing and rehearsing because she's a great performer and I'm up waiting for her to come home, I can just watch YouTube videos of, you know, homecoming from vets or something and just cry. And I do it on purpose. I do it deliberately to provoke that emotion. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't have much to share beyond I don't have strategies for these things. Um, I just know that because of what I've read over the years and because of the things that Yogananda and Dr. Motoyama have said, uh, it's my understanding this is the spiritual path. In fact, um, I, will, I will confess, I had a bias against Christianity for a very long time. 
I think it's like anything. If you grow up half-baked Muslim or half-baked Christian, you kind of see all the foibles. But now when I read about the suffering of the saints, I read it in a different way. Mm-hmm. I go like, oh, yeah, these guys, they voluntarily through prayer and introspection were uncovering the lacerations that it took me to be 60 to do. And they were doing it when they were 20 and 30 and 40. And, and they could even feel in themselves that even the samskara of being jealous are envious, are lustful, are slothful, are wrathful. Just feeling the tendency, forget the act and the memory. Yeah. Just feeling the tendency becomes painful. Yeah. And now I can read Christian poetry with a whole different level of appreciation. Right. Yeah, it's almost... It's almost like you, you've gotten a key that unlocks the deep meaning of those texts. Like, yeah. It's an experiential key. You're like, oh, now I know what they're talking about. And I think to maybe put it on, put what the, the phenomenology, the experience that you're describing, of literally feeling the pain either that you've caused someone else or feeling the pain like a vet that you're watching on YouTube is going through. Um, this is how I hold it conceptually. It may or may not line up with how you hold it conceptually, but it's almost like... When our sense of self is identified with a particular pattern of experience, such as the body, which is a very common form of identification, or identified with thought, you know, I'm the thinker of this thought, etc., I'm the one having these thoughts, that contraction of your one's experience of a sense of self around those experiences puts the individual into a, a sense of separation from the other. Right. And I think when the experiences and I don't I couldn't defend this objectively again. So coming back to what we were talking about earlier, but when one rests as consciousness knowing form or rests as consciousness aware of whatever's arising, that sense of separation between the consciousness and what it's conscious of collapses. Right. There's a there's in various traditions they refer to that as a non-dual Experience, which is kind of what you're saying with the mountain metaphor, that you're always on the mountain. You're never not on the mountain. There's nothing you can do to not be on the mountain. There's nothing you can do to not have a non-dual experience, except you don't realize it, <laughs> except not <laughs> realizing it. So when, when one's sense of self shifts into this non-dual, non-separate zone, if you will, then, and I can't, I don't explain, I can't explain why, but there's a, there's almost with it a well, the, the affective quality of the heart that simply loves what it's connected to. Um, there's no, there's no wondering like, well, maybe I should shouldn't have done that, or I should do that. I don't I don't know if I have time to help that. There's just a spontaneous movement of the heart based on of the connection of love, um, and I wonder if that's. I just I've wondered if that is a a sign of uh, I don't you know I'm kind of losing my train of thought here but that within that experience um, there's a mutuality there's a there's a direct empathy that is not mediated by thought it's about it's mediated through the immediacy of connection. Yeah, I think that I think that what you're intimating at is. The, the partial subjective experience of God is love, that the foundation principle of the world is love. 
those things that we at the very beginning of this talk, I said, I couldn't prove that to anybody given the ugliness in this world. Right. But it seems to be, at least there's a taste of, that it's subjectively true. Yeah. And, um, and uh, yeah, I, just, I think you described it very well. I would just say you use a, a language that um, I'm not as easily familiar with, but to me it would be like every time you shed a layer of yourself, Dr. Modioma said the true self is like an onion. You've got to peel away these layers, and when you get to the center, there's nothing there. Yeah. But every time you shed a layer, you, you feel more love. Yeah. It's not you loving somebody. You feel the love that was already there. Right. And sort of the pain of shedding this onion is why did I waste so much time? Why did I obscure this feeling? And so it's, you're just, to me anyway, that's how I would describe it. Right. Why did I put so much effort into defending, protecting, guarding? Yeah. Pushing away when, yeah. you know, there was no self there. <laughs> um, I realize uh, we've been spending a lot of time on the big picture, which I, this, this, so far this conversation has been great. But um, I do want to do justice to your book a little bit more. Um, so maybe if we can parachute in from what we've been talking about, how do, how do the chakras, or first off, what is a chakra? But then how do the chakras play into the evolution of consciousness to realize nirvakapa samadhi or the true self, the purusha, however, whatever language you want to use for it. How do the, how do the chakras aid or abet that, that evolution and process? Well, I think they aid in, a, in that process by, by the chakra theory is, is, that, is that it is the chakras that form and hold the bodies together, the three bodies together. And that if you use the chakras as focuses, then the energies of those dimensions can be transmuted into the next one higher. So if you, if you gather physical energies around, let's say, the, the heart chakra, mm-hmm. the first sensations you're going to have, paradoxically, is you'll actually speed up your breathing and your heart rate. That's a very common thing because you're bringing more chi to that area, and it tends to stimulate you. But if you can remain calm, remain calm, don't react, but keep bringing that energy in, then eventually the heart will go like, okay, I, the heart chakra will then take this excess energy and convert it into awakening the astral functions of the heart. You know, what are the astral, which means for those who don't know these terms, what are the emotional functions of the heart? What emotions are experienced or perceived by the heart? Because in the yogic view, in the, I'm sorry, I should say it this way, in the chakra view, your ears hear sound your eyes sight and this is carried on into the chakras that you perceive emotions through certain chakras certain chakras perceive these types of emotions another chakra perceives a different field of emotions and so you can use this relationship between physical and the emotional by focusing on the heart you will eventually be able to experience a richer experience of what the heart, what the what emotions your heart is experiencing, what uh, what is dominant in your life, and uh, you could do that with any of the chakras, but the heart's an example. And so it can take us past physical sensation into emotion, and that might be where you need to stay for thirty years. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that's where you're entangled. Your karma is the most knotted up. But the chakra theory, according to Dr. Motiyama, is that now if you can take that emotion that you're experiencing, that huge emotion that's well up, maybe similar to what we talked about earlier, you're just on the verge of crying and repentance for what you've done and the love that you have obstructed and obscured or withheld from people. And you go like, look, you can stay there. And that's repentance. And that's a good thing because it's going to change your patterns of behavior. It's going to change your sanskaras. That's fine. But another thing you can do or might do at a later stage is focus on that emotion like it's a vritti. Focus on it. Try to get distance from it. Become an observer of it. And if you can do that, then eventually the chakra will open up into the causal dimension. And that's the dimension of insight, wisdom, and understanding. It's called pragya in Sanskrit. And now you will understand your karma, why you did the things that you did, and you will gain huge uh, wisdom about how to deal with your karma so that you can dissolve what's not productive and you can enhance what is productive about this present personality. Right. There's a lot there. Uh, Picking up on what you just closed with, um, from the causal dimension, and and maybe you can explain what that is a little bit more, but from the causal dimension, you said there's there's a dimension of wisdom where you can see not just the the imprints or the actions of your past karma, but you can also see the the conditioning that perpetuated or made that karma occur. And and so that's this is where I think there's a deep overlap with the wisdom tradition that I'm talking about from Buddhism, where you start to see into the nature of how things arise, how things come together. And within that wisdom, there's also a simultaneous emergence of the heart to not want to do that anymore. Um, because... And you're talking about coming in through the doorway of a chakra. There's similar phenomenology I've experienced that has, without any recourse to mentioning chakras, that I've touched into just through basically just sitting and watching stuff. So I think there's there, we're on the same mountain. I think we're just we're just using slightly different terms. Um, but maybe just to dial back for a sec, what? How would you describe a chakra? Like what is a chakra to? somebody who might be somewhat skeptical around it and then how would you describe it to someone who wasn't so skeptical in sort of sense like um is does it does, does it have a, a biological overlap um and if so what and in the subtle aspect of it i don't want to give you too many questions that's really rude of me to start stacking four questions on top maybe just start with what it, what is a chakra and, and we'll go from there <laughs> Uh, to a skeptic, I would say that the theory of chakras is that the idea that thought and awareness is brain-centered is only partially correct. That just as you have a you have a, a, an optic center and an acoustic center and proprioceptive centers, that the brain has specialized places. This specialization of which part of your brain does what function continues down the spine. That's the yogic theory. That's what I'd say to a skeptic. Now, part of the theory is that if I meditate on the occipital lobe of my brain, which for those of you who don't know, that's uh, the back of your head and it controls sight and vision. The yogic theory is very similar to this idea. 
If I were to try to send my energy to the back of my head, to my brain, if I get successful at that, I should start to see optical lights and patterns and forms. Because if my occipital center becomes more active, my field of vision, with my, even with my eyes closed, my field of vision will become more excited. Mm-hmm. And so the yogic theory is that you can also do that at your throat, your heart, your diaphragm, et cetera, et cetera. You can go down. And then it, it, it's a longer conversation to say, well, why would you want to do that? We've just had that conversation earlier. But that's what I'd say to a skeptic is that this, the idea that the brain specializes in its functions continues down the spine. Mm-hmm. What I would say to a believer is that, that the chakras are not just f- ways to adjust your physical plumbing. And that the higher use of a chakra is to go, slip past the physical manifestation and feel the emotional content of a chakra. And then to go even deeper than that and become aware of the ignorance and the actions that cause those emotions to be like that. Mm-hmm. And that's going from the astral to the causal. That the idea is you can be perhaps more effective, perhaps more quick and more specific by starting the inward journey with your eyes closed on a specific chakra. But I wanted to go back to what you said earlier. I believe that every spiritual tradition has uncovered love and and all those sort of things without necessarily linking it to a particular part of the body. I just think that for some psychological makeups like mine, Mm -hmm. it's kind of nice to say, I'm going to get onto the freeway on this on-ramp. I'm going to go through the third chakra. I'm going to go through the fifth chakra because I can feel in my physical symptoms of health and well-being, in my emotional life, or in the thoughts I'm preoccupied with, I can feel where my preoccupations or weaknesses are. And so let's go there. Let's go to the throat. Let's go to grief. Let's go to the ether element. Let's go to here because I'm already experiencing that. And if the, if the number one thing about all spiritual traditions is some form of quiet introspection, the easiest way in is going to be through those portals and channels of physicality and emotion and thought, habits of thought that are already dominant in your life. And I think that the chakras can help with that. But I do not think that you need to focus on the chakras to open all of the chakras any more than you need to think about the back of your head to experience the occipital input. I just think it is a way to uh, develop uh, pratyahara and introspection. Yeah, and one of the thoughts I had when you're talking there is that, again, if we start from where we began, which is that suffering is predicated on identification with some form of content of, of consciousness uh, it's almost I got the sense that the chakras become kind of forgive the language here maybe a little crude but like holding tanks for particular kinds of identification and uh, fixation well that's actually very good yeah so well this is this is helping me because this is <laughs> I'm getting a huge new download from you in this, in this interview um, and so so in, in actual pragmatic terms, uh, let's say, I, I, I'm going to invite you to give an example here, but let's say somebody has some sort of psycho-emotional fixation, like there's a recurring, repetitive, recursive pattern in their life and in their mind, their thought stream. 
how would you recommend using the chakra system to come to terms with that pattern and then ultimately liberate oneself from that pattern? Uh, In theory, I think what I would try to do, and I would be very cautious about this because it is theory for me, it is conceptual, it's not experiential. In theory, it would be, okay, let's have a little talk or let's do some you do research on your own and determine that this preoccupation that you're having is, is, is associated with a certain chakra. Then you have one of two prob- uh, approaches, which is that ever-present yin and yang thing. Mm-hmm. Let's say it's a lustful thought. It bothers most people that sometime in their life can't shake it, can't get rid of it. Well, that's a second chakra phenomenon. So, okay, let's focus on the second chakra. And the, and the question now becomes, if you keep gathering your chi in your mind to that second chakra, you're going to gain objectivity. It might stir it up, but when you stir up a thought or a memory and you're just sitting still, you're not watching the opposite sex walks by, you're just sitting in your room and your eyes are closed and you can, you can buy that experience, increase these lustful thoughts and activities, it helps to gain objectivity about them. The yin and the yang to that is, Depending on your moral character and your moral strength and how much you can control yourself, it could be that you'd want to do the opposite rather than focus on the second chakra. (laughs) That Dr. Motoyama would say each of the chakras has a sort of a controlling or oppositional yin and yang polar to it. and And the polar to the second chakra is the sixth chakra. So if you're really in the throes of it, maybe you should try to bring energy from the first, second chakra up to the sixth chakra. And you can do that with breathing or breathe in and out of the sixth chakra, however you want to do it. And so I think that's my quick outline, mm-hmm. is there's, there's going to be a yin or a yang. The second, you've identified as an example, the second chakra is your problem. If you've got a strong foundational practice, face your enemies. Mm-hmm. Go to the second chakra. Feel it come up. Analyze it. You know, that kind of thing. If you're if you like you're already overwhelmed, you don't have a support system, you don't have a group, you don't have a philosophy to help you, then okay, let's go to the sixth chakra. <laughs> Sorry, the support you had me with the support group there. <laughs> second chakra support group, a meeting tonight second at six o'clock. Support. Well, they have that now, don't they? Don't they have sexual addiction support group things? Or sure, am I sure, making sure. that up? No, you're not. But it's not. It doesn't have the band of second chakra support group. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't have a second chakra support group. <laughs> but um, just to echo what you're saying, or to, to play off of it, uh, again, I think there's a there's an anticipation amongst most people that if they do their practice well, whatever whatever ails them is going to become gradually less and less and less. And what you're describing there, at least in going into facing it at the level of the second chakra, it almost would let that that energy and the the, the things that aren't resolved within that chakra those will bloom with greater vividness um, for a period of time. That is my experience, and that is my understanding. It's like drawing it to a boil. Yeah. You know, you've got a poison, a toxin in your body. It's affecting everything, and you draw that poison to one place, your lymph node, and it's going to grow that lymph node or your tonsils, and it's going to become inflamed and infected. And you're wondering why am I doing this? Because now that you've gathered it all to one place, hopefully you can purge it and deal with it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's my second the follow up question: How to purge? 
And, and, and is it a real purge or is it more of a transmutation? I think it can be either one, depending on, I think actually that might, that might be the same thing. Uh-huh. But yeah, I think that it depends on what you're suffering from. Sometimes you're suffering from past karma, which to me means you don't have the samskara for uh, greed anymore. But in your last life, you had that a lot and you screwed people over because of it. Mm-hmm. Well, now you don't have that greed. You're not wrestling with greed. You're not preoccupied with greed, but you're going to have greed karma. And so if you can just sit through that and that that'll just be um, purging it, that would be what's bothering you as a past uh, vasana. What's bothering you as a past action, whereas the more subtle and the more difficult, I think what you would call a transmutation is the sanskara, the habit of behavior still exists in you. It's a sleeping snake, and it takes more subtlety to even become aware of it, and then you've got to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so I think it depends on whether it's the karma of a past that's bothering you, it's not your present life that's bothering you, or is it a present existing, um, for those who don't know the Sanskrit, is it a habit pattern, a thought pattern, a desire pattern that's in you still? Maybe it's been dormant for a long time but it's still in you. And I think if the snake is still in you, I think of a sanskara as a snake. If the snake is still in you, then I think uh, what you said, that you have to transmute that. You have to transmute that that into a higher function. And I think that takes, I think that's where philosophy and introspection are incredibly important. I mean, if you're lucky enough to sit at the feet of foot of a master, that'd be great. Most of us aren't. And I think that's why the teachings, the teachings, whether it's the Buddha's teachings or whatever teachings, that's where the teachings are your refuge. Because you're going to find in the, any, any body of teachings of any substance, you're going to find these common problems that plague humanity. And I think that that's how you transmute, yeah. is that you admit to yourself that you have this hidden capacity. And then you say, and you constantly analyze, maybe not in meditation, but maybe in your regular life, you constantly analyze and affirm that to pursue that tendency is going to cause suffering. And if you keep saying that to yourself, then I think that will transmute that energy. Okay, we'll pause the conversation there again. Heavy stuff there, but such important themes to explore and discuss. I personally have re-listened to this particular installment of the conversation with Paul at least four times now, and I keep finding gems within the reflections that Paul offers. So I do hope you're enjoying the series as much as I enjoyed speaking with Paul. In the next and final episode, we cover a range of topics from higher mystical experiences to the relationship between growing up and waking up to how he and I think about integrating yin yoga into the cultivation of a spiritual path. In the meantime, please check out his great new book, A Yogi's Guide to Chakra Meditation. There's a link for you in the show notes as well as a link to Paul's website. Of course, if you would like to study or train in yin yoga with me this year, please check out my calendar of events on my site, www.joshsummers.net forward slash events, where you'll find up-to-date listings on trainings, workshops, and retreats, that Terry Coburn and I offer in our yin yoga school. Okay, that's it for today, and I look forward to seeing you again in the next episode. Be well.